I do believe when we get to glory and we gain something of an increased understanding of what God was doing through His vehicle, the church, we will look at one another and say, why weren't we together more often? Now I understand what God was doing through the church. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to When in Athens, part two of two from Pastor Paul Twiss. What do we value above all other things? Is it to live a self-reliant life or a life of pleasure? And are these lifestyles consistent with Scripture? In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul notes that God was intentional in forming the universe and that humans, as image bearers, have a responsibility to one another. Pastor Paul says that God calls us to devote our lives to one another through the local church, for it is the local church that provides the fuel for gospel advancement. Be encouraged that the gospel advances because God makes himself known through his creative work. Here's part two of When in Athens, and we pick up with Pastor Paul celebrating the ongoing triumph of Christ's bride, the church. Notice how they say the same things as Christ. Their speeches aren't new. They're just rehearsing the gospel. And then notice how everything they do imitates Christ as is found in Luke's gospel. You read the apostles' lives and with an eeriness, Everything they do sounds something like an episode I read in Luke's gospel, and that's purposeful. That's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. God is orchestrating their lives so that they look like Christ. Because the point is this, is not the acts of the apostles that are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through them. And it's when Jesus shows up and God is made known through him that worlds are turned upside down and the gospel advances. And this is a great encouragement to the church today. Wherever you're at in the book of Acts, you can hit pause and praise God that he made himself known to you through the person of Christ. This is what he did for you. And however long you were in the church, and we praise God for that kind of upbringing, but until he showed up savingly through the person of Christ, he was at a distance unknown, objectified. And then, by his grace, he showed up in your life. And with that, we pray earnestly for those who are yet to know God in this way. But that's just the beginning of Paul's speech. To an unknown God, he says. And then he moves on to God known in creation. He begins with the unknown God, and then he moves on and says, Now let me make him known to you through his creative work. There are two points of emphasis that you need to pay attention to here. The first is just how intentional Paul presents God as being in his creative act, just how invested he is in creating the earth and humankind. And secondly, the responsibility that he has given to us. So he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's Lord of heaven and earth, he himself Verse 25, he himself, emphatic, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He determined periods and boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God. And then he reiterates by quoting some of their own poets. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Just a note about Paul's method here. There's no passage in the book of Acts that has had more written about it than chapter 17. Chapter 17 is the most written about passage in the book of Acts. And the reason for that is because so many go here to derive some kind of methodology for missions in particular and cross-cultural missions. So many say that what we have here is a model for how to engage with other cultures, and that's not altogether wrong. But the mistake that so often is made is to suggest that Paul in some way appropriated the gospel so as to fit and find and be acceptable in a particular context. Common argument that you could read is that Paul changed the gospel itself so that the Stoics and the Epicureans would find it to be acceptable, receive Christ, and then he would take time to explain what he had changed. And there is no truth in that. There's no truth in that. Certainly, when there were points of correspondence, and it's normally between Stoicism and Christianity, Paul was happy to highlight them. But the second that there is a contradiction, Paul preaches the gospel. In fact, there are points in this speech where Paul draws attention to the beliefs of the Stoics and the Epicureans in order to show them wherein they're wrong. My title for this evening was When in Athens, in part, again, because Wednesday comes around too quickly and I have no idea what to call my sermon. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Athens, do as the Athenians do. And so just in a mildly provocative manner, I submitted that title, and I did not mean at all when in Athens do like the Athenians do, but rather when in Athens preach the gospel. Wherever you are, with all grace and all humility, you preach the gospel. Now, with that being said, why does Paul present God's creative act with these two points of emphasis? Number one, just how intentional God was in forming the universe how invested he was, and number two, the responsibility we have. You see, Paul doesn't quote from Genesis chapter one here, but there are some strong echoes going back to the first page of our Bible. It seems like Paul is echoing the creation mandate that God gave to mankind, to live on the earth, to fill it, to subdue, to rule over, to be his image bearers, He makes the point negatively when he says, don't think that God's image is found in stone or silver or gold. Inferences is found in you. You need to correct your theology because God's image has been set upon you. So we have these two ideas being brought out in Paul's creation theology. God was heavily invested in forming and fashioning the world and setting appointed boundaries and times and seasons and placing you on the earth. Oh, and by the way, you have some responsibilities as image bearers. Why? Here's where we need to think a little bit more about what Stoicism was and Epicureanism. The Epicureans valued pleasure above all other things. People talk about the Epicureans as as hedonists. But it wasn't a kind of pleasure that you might be thinking of. It's not luxurious indulgence. It wasn't a life of luxury that they sought after. 
In fact, they sought quite a simple life. One Epicurean said, if you add cheese to bread and water, you have a feast. They sought a very simple life. The kind of pleasure that they valued above every other thing was freedom from pain. That was the Epicurean belief system. Freedom from pain is the ideal. The gods are at a distance. They keep themselves far from us because then they don't have to bother themselves with thoughts of us. They're living the good life. No pain, nothing to bother them. That's what they sought after. The Stoics, they'd had a different ideal. Maybe you think of how we use that word in in our language today. We talk about a person being particularly Stoic. The Brits are often described as being a Stoic people. We're raised as schoolboys not to show our emotions. Stoicism means you don't cry when your dog dies. Jimmy, why are you crying? Because my dog died this morning. No, he didn't. Get on with your work. That's how we're raised. You don't show your emotion. And that derives from the Stoic belief that the ideal in life was independence, autonomy. You're not relying on anyone else. You're not attached to anything else. The Stoic ideal was to live a self-reliant life. Now think about those two belief systems. Paul understands these two schools of thought. And he preaches a creation theology that says, you aren't in desperate need of God. And you have a responsibility toward one another. He says, God made you. You depend on him for your life, for your breath, for everything. You depend on God to close your eyes at night. You depend on him to take your next breath. Get rid of all ideas of independence and autonomy. And number two, you have responsibility toward one another. You're image bearers of this God and he's put you on this earth for a purpose. See the two infinitives of purpose there in verse 26, to live and to seek God. You've been placed where you've been placed in life at this particular time in history, in this location, and it comes with responsibility. So set aside all notions of a pain-free existence. Stop searching for utopia because there's work to be done. That's the creation theology that Paul preaches. And again, I trust you can see a fairly straight line can be drawn. The mantra of our society is to live a pain-free existence and one wherein we are not dependent on one another. It's in the DNA of Western thinking. Few people know this, but Thomas Jefferson was an Epicurean. In 1819, he wrote a letter to his former secretary and said, I too am an Epicurean. I believe all the doctrines that have been handed down to us from ancient Rome to be sufficient and ancient Athens. And then it was de Tocqueville who said, in surveying the American populace, I find these people to prize comfort above all other things. He said, so much so that I believe they would enslave themselves in order to maintain comfortable lives. And that's where we are today. And because of various advances that we've enjoyed, mostly technological We live with less and less and less sense of community, less sense of social responsibility, less sense of looking out for one another. We are a people that readily pass by the issue that confronts us because it doesn't concern me. And here is a point where we might readily look at the church's failings. You see, whenever you make application from the text, whenever you see issues, 
one question you want to ask yourself is, do I see this in the world at large? And has it bled into the church? And in this case, the answer would be yes on both counts. Our form of evangelicalism is very individualistic. I don't think we live out the same sense of community that our predecessors did. And nor are we willing to do difficult things for the sake of the gospel. In fact, so entrenched are these two ideas in our own thinking and our own way of life that it is difficult to articulate just how much of an issue it is. The biggest issues that confront the church today are not some ideological political group that exists outside of us whose agenda at some point might come up against the church, but rather the issues inside the church, a lack of willingness to commit to one another and lay down our lives for the sake of gospel progress. Now, the antidote to these problems is relatively simple. On the one hand, we would all do well to be back in the book of Acts. Again, Luke has been presenting to us a theology from the very beginning that centers the church in this narrative. From the day that it was formed... At Pentecost, Luke's narrative is one that puts the church at the center. The apostles are out there preaching the word, doing the miracles, but he always makes mention of the church in such a way so as to impress upon us it is the church that provides the fuel for the advancement of the gospel. Now, what is it that the church are doing each and every time? They are devoting themselves to fellowship, communion, submission to the teaching of God's word, and prayer. Luke draws attention to the church. That's your line of application. And when they are together, they enjoy fellowship and communion and they open God's word and they pray. And that is the way this gospel goes to the ends of the earth. We're not being called to do anything fantastic. We're being called to devote our lives to one another. I do believe when we get to glory and we gain something of an increased understanding of what God was doing through his vehicle, the church, we will look at one another and say, why weren't we together more often? Now I understand what God was doing through the church. You have to train your heart to believe that this is the most significant institution on planet earth. You've got to train your heart to believe that the local church is more valuable than any other business or corporation on the planet. When the church meets, God does things that are untold, supernatural, the fruits of which we will see in glory. If you are a member of the local church, yours is the most valuable membership on planet earth. Don't desire to be part of some other group because you have church membership. God, by his grace, called you into salvation and now you belong to the church. Now, as I say that, I understand that deals with only half the issue. Responsibility towards one another is only half the problem. And in fact, it creates more problems, doesn't it? Because when we come together, now life gets tricky. It's relatively easy when we keep one another at a distance. But when we come up close, we start to see each other's warts. Things start to get really, really hard, and that's the life that we've been called to. The other antidote is equally as simple, and that is to think often upon the truth of heaven. To think often upon the reality that very, very soon we'll be gathered around the throne singing praises just as we did this evening. We sang together this evening, washed in Christ's blood. We come here as redeemed sinners, accepted by a holy God because of the Lamb, and our voices have been washed in blood. Now, you didn't all sing in tune tonight, and the person in front of you will testify to that. 
That's why I like sitting on the front row, because there's no one being subjected to my singing. But the point is, your songs were accepted by God this evening. Whereas before, outside of the gospel, you could sing a thousand hymns and he would refuse to hear them. Tonight he heard them, and joyfully so, because you sing with redeemed voices. And all we're doing every single time we meet is rehearsing for the day when he gathers around his throne and we sing a new song. And if you can set your mind to think of that often, to know that one day very soon we will live a life without pain, that the Epicurean ideal will be real for us on that day, not now, but on that day, no pain. No struggle. And if you can think often upon that, then you can fulfill your responsibility. You can do some really hard things for the sake of the gospel. And that is what Paul calls us to do. Now he gets to the climax of his sermon in verse 30. He's talked about the fact that they have an unknown God. He can make God known through creation, but it's when he makes God known through the person of Jesus Christ that the pinnacle of his speech comes. Times of ignorance God overlooked, not meaning that there was no punishment for those that turned their back on God, but because the revelation of Jesus Christ had not come, that lessened the punishment. Not so now, Jesus Christ has been revealed and you have to give an account for what you did with him. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their lifestyle. Why? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness By a man, namely Jesus. He's appointed the time and the man, and he's given assurance. How? By the resurrection. Now again, the Stoics and the Epicureans would have found this a very, very difficult pill to swallow. The reason being that both schools of thought taught that there is no such thing as the resurrection. And because there is no resurrection, then there is no judgment. And Paul says, I've seen it. We've seen the resurrected Christ. And because we have seen him resurrected, not only is his death on the cross validated as a payment for sin, but so also everything he taught us. And he taught us that he's coming again to judge the quick and the dead. Look at the resurrected Christ and know that judgment is coming. And it's a very, very difficult thing to come to terms with the fact that every thought that you've ever had, every word you've ever spoken, everything you've ever done will be brought into the light and judged. That's why these two schools of thought did away with it, because it's so hard to come to terms with. So we'll teach that there is no resurrection. That's why today we shorten our horizons so much. More than anyone else, we sever ourselves from the past neglecting to consider that we have a debt of gratitude to those that have gone before us and we sever ourselves from the future, neglecting to think about the judgment that is to come or the responsibility that we have to those that come after us because life is easier that way. I'm reading a book right now on the D-Day landings. It's huge. It's it's an hour-by-hour exhaustive account of that one day in history. And every single time I read it, it is such a sobering read. You just cannot 
think what it must have been like as a 20-something young man to train for two years for one day of battle and then to be in that first wave that gets washed up on those beaches and the landing craft opens and you're on. You have to go. I mean, that will put things in perspective really quickly. Every single time I open that book, I'm reminded of the gratitude, the debt of gratitude we have of those that came before us. The horizon that comes behind us isn't allowed to be so short anymore. And then your mind invariably goes to that which is to come. And the fact that you don't know how long you've got. You don't know when your last day will be. And at the end of it, judgment. Guaranteed. Notice the response. Some mocked. Mockery is very closely related to terror. When you don't know what to do with something. When you're presented a set of facts that don't compute in your mind, you do one of two things. You laugh or you express terror. In Revelation 6, they express terror because there's no running away from it. Here on this day, they laughed. Some weren't sure. Let's hear you again on this. But others believed. And I think it's telling that Luke only mentions two. Don't be disheartened when you don't see the church exploding. The preaching of the gospel advances the mission. Making God known through the person of Christ. It's not a secret hidden message. It's a very simple message. And it is the same message that we're called to preach today. But don't be disheartened when the results aren't what you would have them be. Two believers are mentioned. Two picked up the baton that day, maybe a few more, and said, I believe, and I'm coming. And we can be greatly encouraged that individual by individual by individual, God is still in the business today of turning worlds upside down. And he does it through the simple proclamation of his son, making himself known through the risen, crucified Lord Jesus. Let's pray to close. Father, we praise you for your goodness in making yourself known, not only in creation, but specifically through your Son. We rejoice that we are the recipients of your salvation, that by your grace and for no other reason, you revealed yourself to us in the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we sit here this evening as though that those who know you savingly, the gospel made it to the ends of the earth. And we praise you. Father, we do pray. We pray for those in our own lives who you know about, you've placed there according to your wisdom, who are destined for damnation who don't know you. Strengthen us to be faithful with all meekness, humility, and grace to testify to Christ. And Lord, open their eyes. We do commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul contends that we must train our hearts to believe that the local church is the most significant institution on planet Earth. Although devoting ourselves to one another in the local church is challenging because we're sinners, we must think often of the blessed hope that we will one day live a life without pain in heaven. In doing so, 
we can fulfill our responsibilities to others here on earth and faithfully preach the gospel. God is good in making himself known not only through creation, but also through his Son. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you want to learn more about what this ministry has to offer, both in teaching and encouragement for your walk with Jesus, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts, and there you'll find our entire archive of solid Bible teaching programs. Join us tomorrow as we begin a new series with part one of Christ, the Center of All History. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.